It has been called the most frightening word in the human language. Lost. If people are not lost, why did Jesus leave heaven and come to this earth? The motivation we were singing about, because he loved me so. But from the standpoint of purpose, why did he come? He said it, Luke 19, 10. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Not that which might be lost in the day of judgment. That which was already lost. If people are not lost, what is so wonderful about the love of God? John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If people aren't perishing, what's so great about the love of God that sent his son to rescue the perishing? And technically, to perish doesn't mean to go out of existence. Doesn't mean the loss of being. But it definitely means the loss of well-being. If, if people are not lost, what is so amazing about God's grace? You know, we sing that tremendous song, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that what? That saved a wretch like me. But if people aren't lost, what's so amazing about all of that? But the sad truth is, people are lost. And without Christ, they are eternally lost. Without Christ, people are perishing. They are standing every moment on the brink of an eternity to be hurled out there by death, unprepared, unprepared forever. Never in a million years will they hear an invitation song to respond to the Lord. Never in a million years will they have someone pleading with them, exhorting them to let today be the day of your salvation. I'll give you a one-word summary of a book I hold before you, Salvation. That's a one-word summary of this blessed book. James 1.21 says, Receive with meekness the engrafted or implanted word which is able to save your souls. So we're focusing on salvation. The theme of the scripture, the purpose of the coming of Christ, the reason for the love of God, the manifestation of his grace, all because people were lost and God does not want that. God is not willing that any should perish. He wants us all to be saved. I mean, it's written in 1 Timothy 2, 4, God will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. So if you'll loan me your mind for just about 35 minutes, maybe 40, I want us to do two things together. First, let's look at what the Bible means by salvation, that tremendous concept. And then second, and I'm taking you to a scripture, in 2 Corinthians that says, today is the day of salvation. Why is that? You say, well, the Bible says it in 2 Corinthians 6 too. You're right, quotation from Isaiah, today is the day of salvation. But there must be a reason why the Bible would say that. But let's go to 2 Corinthians, if you will, if you want to open your Bible. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll start with verse 17. Here are words inspired by God's Holy Spirit written by this great apostle Paul. He says, therefore, if any man be in Christ, 
He's a new creature or literally a new creation. All things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Old relationships with the devil's crowd, old fears, old doubts, old guilt, old shame, old sense of condemnation, all things are passed away. Because in Jesus Christ, when you and I get into Jesus Christ, we enter a realm of a new creation. The Lord Jesus Christ, the scripture very plainly says, was involved in the creation of this universe. You could turn to Hebrews 1, and it opens with that tremendous declaration, God hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. Here is the one through whom God is speaking, the one through whom God brought this universe into existence. And as we noted last night from Colossians 1, he's called the firstborn of God's creation. He's preeminent over everything that God has created. But there's a new creation. And it's a marvelous working of the Lord. He makes us new people. And as surely as you and I follow the teaching of the scripture as to the way we get into Christ, that's the way we're going to become a part of a new creation. One of the fascinating things to me about becoming a Christian, really identifying with Jesus Christ, is becoming a part of God's creation being put back together. I know you've read in the scripture that Jesus is the second Adam. 1 Corinthians 15, 45, the first Adam was made a living soul, second Adam was made a life-giving spirit. What do you mean? Well, I mean that Jesus is the second Adam in the sense he is the one that God brought into this world to demonstrate man's idea of God and God's idea or ideal of man. You know, when Jesus was here, he said, he that has seen me has seen the Father. That's right. But also, if you look at Jesus while he's here upon this earth, that's what God had in mind when he created Adam, the first Adam. Before sin came and marred God's creation, Jesus here with us, that was his ideal of man. And when you and I connect to the Son of God, we are becoming a part of a restoration of God's creation in Jesus Christ. Now, furthermore, as we think about what salvation really means, he says, considering again 2 Corinthians 5, And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given unto us the ministry of reconciliation. To know, to wither, to know that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing unto them their trespasses, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. We then are the ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled unto God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, did you count how many times you find the word reconcile? Five times in those verses, right? Reconciliation. It, it, it's a beautiful idea. You know, sometimes friends are alienated. Business partners sometimes have serious disagreements. You know, sometimes even in a family. 
every time I read the time when Jacob came back and met his brother Esau, it moves me to tears. I mean, if you remember what happened, Jacob, the supplanter, had uh, deceived the father, and he had gotten the blessing that should have gone to the older one. Although they were twins, Esau was born first, as you know. And Esau hated his brother. And he intended, after the father died, to kill him. And Jacob fled for his life, came to a place to spend the night. And I've often thought about what emotions must have been churning in his mind. Leaving home, leaving the love of a mother, leaving the love of a father, going to another country. And here he is alone. And he took a stone for a pillow, and he dreamed, if you remember, that ladder from earth to heaven, angels ascending and descending that ladder. Next morning, he made this observation. God was in this place, and I knew it not. And then he went on, and for several years, he was gone. Finally, it's time to come back, come home now. He has his family with him. He has acquired a lot of flocks and herds, but he's dreading meeting his brother. Does his brother still have the hatred in his heart? Is he going to kill me? And so he was sending presents ahead by servants for Esau. And finally the moment came, and they met. You remember what they did? They wept. They embraced and they wept. That's reconciliation, folks. When you think about nations sometimes, getting at odds with nations. Now, I, I was young when World War II came. I was about 10 years old, December 7th, 41, when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. And I remember a time when the Japanese folks were referred to as Japs. I remember that. They were Japs. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but how many of you drove a Japanese vehicle to this service tonight? I'm not being critical either. I just say we've had a reconciliation. I remember a time in my life the Germans were crouched. And, man, they had all those cartoons about Tojo and Hitler. I mean, despised people. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. How many drove a German car here tonight? What has changed? There's been a reconciliation. It's a beautiful thing. And those of us who preach, I'm sure there have been occasions, I could tell you occasions in my office in Nashville when I have seen a husband and wife reconciled, tears freely flowing from their eyes and mine. And the potential of that sometimes stirs your soul to its depth. But the greatest reconciliation is when we are reconciled to our God. And to make that a possibility, oh, what it cost the Son of God. I want to take you for a moment to Colossians 1. After the apostle had affirmed that Jesus Christ is preeminent in all things and that he's the head of the body of the church, Paul said, it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell.
and having made peace through the blood of his cross to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Now watch this next statement, please. And you that sometimes were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and without blame and without blemish before God. If you continue in the faith rooted and grounded and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel. You think about all the folks today that are enemies of God. Not that God is their enemy. They are enemies of God. If you don't think that Paul was right on target in Romans 1 when he talked about people that hated God, couldn't you give some names of folks today that obviously hate God? You think Christopher Hitchens loved God when he wrote a book, God is Not Great? Now, Hitchens died at the age of 62 from throat cancer. You think, honestly, do you really think Richard Dawkins loves God? Writing a book like The God Delusion? You think Sam Harris really loves God in that little book, Letter to a Christian Nation? These folks hate God. They hate the idea of God. They're alienated from him. But thanks be to God, you and I have laid down any alienation and we have embraced reconciliation. That has to be a wonderful thing in heaven, right? Luke 15, in the parable of the shepherd that had lost the sheep, what happened when he found him? Put him on his shoulder and brought him home. Called the friends to rejoice with him. What did Jesus say? Likewise, I say unto you that there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner that repents. One. More than over 99 just persons that need no repentance. Well, today, there are over 6 billion people living on this earth. And you tell me that heaven would rejoice if just one of those billions would come in penitence to the Lord and submit to him as the Lord of their life, obey him from the heart. You, you think there's joy in heaven over that one? Well, suppose it's your son or perhaps your daughter. You think they'd be rejoicing over one? What, what if it's your mother or your father or your spouse or your best friend? Would there be rejoicing over one? You see why, don't you? You know, God so loved the world that he gave his son. So when I think about the possibility of reconciliation to God and what it cost God, I mean, who had turned away, God or man? Men had fallen short of his glory. You've read it, Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Men were the ones that walked away. And God in mercy and grace and love through his son is reaching out to bring them into reconciliation with himself. But I will promise you, before the problem could ever be resolved, if God is going to be consistent with his own attribute of holiness, and not just somewhat wave the hand in justifying us or pronouncing us pardon of our sins without a price being paid and potentially wrecking the whole moral universe, 
a price had to be paid for sin. I couldn't pay it. And like Top Lady wrote in Rock of Ages, could my tears forever flow? Could my zeal no respite? No. These for sin cannot atone. Thou must save and thou alone. And so what do we sing? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We can say those words and we can say them to a tune. But I say to us that is a profound observation. It marches us back across the centuries and we can look upon three crosses on a lonely hill called Golgotha, the place of the skull. And we can see on that middle cross the innocent, loving Son of God, brutalized, traumatized through a suffering called a scourging, brutalized now in a death. And I say, he's dying for me. He's dying for you. Jesus paid it all. Why? That we might be reconciled to God. This is salvation. It is reconciliation. It's coming back from a mind where we are alienated from God, a mind characterized by wicked works. We come back to a loving God to embrace him with our hearts, to honor him with our lives, to obey his son from our hearts. Uh, and, and we can sing, How Great Thou Art. Amen. So when I think about what really is self, it's reconciliation. What is it? It's being made a new person in Jesus Christ. What is it? He says, God is not imputing their trespasses. Here's the banker now. He's, he's putting down his figures. But you know what God does when he doesn't impute or record our trespasses? He just completely forgives them. Among the many things that I love about my new covenant given by the Lord Jesus Christ, the one Jeremiah 31, 31, 34 said God was going to make new covenant. Hebrews 8 just quotes that. And down in that great quotation, the inspired writer says, giving the word of God, their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. No more. You know, that's a wonderful possibility, folks. I've had people to say, name just about any sin in the Bible, and I've done it. I was in a meeting somewhere in Virginia, and my song leader had been a truck driver. He said, my run was from Memphis to Los Angeles. I'd leave Memphis with a bottle of Jack Daniel and a box of pills to take me to Los Angeles. We were sitting around the dinner table, and he said, you can name just about any sin in, in the Bible. I've done it, except one, homosexuality. I've never done that one. But any, any, any of the rest of them, yeah, I've done that. He wasn't bragging. He was, he was sincerely saying, I was a fool. I mean, why in the world did I choose that kind of life? But somebody got to him with some good news. You know, fellow, what God can do? He can take all those sins 
and he can take the blood of his son as an adequate payment for those sins against God, and he will wipe them out to remember them no more against you. The forgiveness of God, not imputing their trespasses. This is salvation. And then he says concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, he made him to be sin for us, literally a sin offering. Who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him, made right in God's sight, made right to do right in God's sight, all because God laid upon Jesus Christ the iniquity of us all. One time I read about a fellow who had made a few changes in his Bible in Isaiah 53. He was nearing the end of this earthly sojourn, and he had requested that Isaiah 53 be read at his funeral service, and he said, I want it read just like it is in my Bible. So the preacher took his Bible, and he started reading Isaiah 53. Lord, who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of the dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief, and we hid his, as it were, our faces from him. Surely he hath borne our griefs, and carried our sorrows, and we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we were healed. And he had changed all that. Instead of saying, surely he hath borne our griefs, he said, surely he has borne my griefs and carried my sorrows. And I did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for my transgressions. He was bruised for my iniquities. The chastisement of my peace was upon him, and by his stripes I am healed. Made it very personal. We all need to make it very personal because it's that real. This is salvation. Now move quickly to the second area. We've been looking at what the Bible says salvation really is, why Jesus came to save us, what all that involves, at least We've touched the hem of the garment. Now look at this statement going on in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 and 2. We then as workers together with him beseech you that you receive not the grace of God in vain. For he hath said, I have heard thee in the time accepted, and in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Now, why is that? We've already indicated. Well, the Bible says it. That makes it so. I know, but the Bible has a reason to say that. I submit to you the following reasons why that has to be so. Today is the day of salvation. Now, the first thing, I'm going to give you a scripture on this, and then I'm going to give you an illustration that occurred in Warren County, Tennessee, yesterday. Now, here's my scripture. James chapter 4. You've read this many times, starting in verse 13. Come now, you that say, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such a city and we'll continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain, whereas you know not what shall be on tomorrow. For what is your life? 
It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little time and then vanisheth away. For that you ought to say, if the Lord will, we shall live and do this or that. But now you rejoice in your boasting, and all such rejoicing is evil. Therefore, to him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Look at this. You know not what shall be on the morrow. Do you believe that? Years ago, I held, I don't know how many meetings down to Etheridge, Tennessee, with Brother Jerry Corlew. He was the preacher. Great, great memories, great memories. Jerry, been with the Lord for a long time, but oh, a precious friend. And just to be with him in meetings was kind of like being with Randy. It just kind of lifts you up, his enthusiasm for the work of Christ. He had a little girl, Carol, precious little girl. Had, I think, two or three other children. I believe she was the older of the ones. I had a call this morning. I had heard on the news that they had a tragic accident in Warren County yesterday. God has let me preach all over Warren County. I started way back, I think, in the later 60s. Started by holding a meeting at Central in McMinnville. I don't know how many times I've been back there for meetings. Morrison, Arrington, going back for funerals. I know a lot of folks in Warren County, and when I heard that announcement, I thought, you know, the possibilities. I may know somebody involved in that. And then I had my call this morning. It was Carol. I had been with them sometime last year at Bobby Branch and uh, had, had spoken one Sunday night. And Steve, the husband, Steve Boyd, told me that he'd been asked to serve as an elder. And I said, well, Steve, I'm, I'm not surprised, but I'm glad. He had a good wife, but a lady was coming around a curve. Carol was one, about one mile away from her home. The lady lost control and hit Carol head on. On my way up, I called Steve. I said, Steve, I don't have a speech to make to you, but I've got a heart caring for you. You, know, you don't know what's going to be on tomorrow. And it's like a friend of mine who called me this morning and said, you know, we, we hear about things like this, but it's always somebody else. And then occasionally it becomes a reality, somebody you personally know. Do you, do you believe the scripture? You know not what shall be on the morrow. Does a person who understands the price at least that has access to it, they may not understand it, but a person that has had the opportunity to know that God let his son leave the beauty and security of heaven and come to this sin-cursed earth to be treated worse than a criminal. And for this person to know, you know, I really ought to obey that. If, if, if the Savior loved me that much, it's not asking too much for me to obey him and live for him. Because it gives me life now. I have more than a biological existence. I really live. I have meaning for my life. I have joy. I have peace. I have hope. But they walk away. They don't respond to the Lord's invitation. He said, come, I'll give you rest. I'll do that later. You brethren that preach it, has anyone ever told you, well, you know, I'm, I'm really seriously thinking about it and, and maybe 
you know, I've, I've got a few things to get worked out now. Anybody ever told you things like They've told me things like that as if they knew what would be on tomorrow. As if they knew, oh, I'm going to live tomorrow. That, there are going to be other opportunities. I went to a man's home in Texas when we were living in West Texas. This man came with his wife to the services all the time. He owned a pharmacy there in town, well respected. I went to plead with him for his soul. And I just asked him, I said, Raymond, are there moments when you know that you need to respond to the Lord and you don't do it? I never will forget what he said. He said, have you ever heard about that fellow that would hold on to the back of the pew till his knuckles turn white? I said, yeah, I've heard about him. He said, I'm that man. Well, then I started pleading. I mean pleading. If ever again in your life there is that realization and inclination, please don't turn your Lord down. I don't know how long it was after that, maybe a month. One Sunday night, he came down the aisle. I mean, folks respected him. They loved him. People were sitting down all over the audience crying with joy. And the preacher was crying with joy. It's a great moment. But I'll tell you, folks, I have had to bury some of my own kin for whose soul I had begged and see them so close and yet going into eternity without God and without hope. If you want a bitterness of your heart, bury a relative that's your flesh and blood kin that you love dearly when there's no hope. I was doing a funeral for a man that had never obeyed the Lord. His son, faithful member of the Lord's church, came to me right before the service, said, Tom, you know, Daddy never did obey the Lord. He never was baptized into Christ. He said, just fix it up any way you can. Oh, my heart hurt for him. How do I fix it up? So when I think about a person who knows they need to obey the Lord, and I, I will later on, I think about a governor. You've heard about this fellow, haven't you? Governor Felix. Paul reasoned with that man about righteousness and temperance and judgment to come. And Felix said, go your way for this season, for this time. When I have a convenient season, I'll call for you. Man, what are you looking for a convenience? When it's going to be just as easy to obey the Lord as not to do it? Well, you'll never find that. The devil will see to it. You'll never find that. There has to be the time you are willing to pay the price to become a child of God. You know why the scripture says today's the day of salvation? Because tomorrow is unsure. There are people this moment out there in eternity that when this day started... They had no idea that that would be their destiny at this moment. There's another reason. 
why the scripture says today's the day. And that's because of the potential to harden a person's heart. If you knew for a fact that you could live to be 99 years of age, it would be the course of folly for you to wait until you are 98 and nearly 99 to become a child of God. And the reason is given in Hebrews chapter 3, 12 and 13. Please listen to the word of the Lord. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. You see that? Hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Sin can so harden a person's heart that at one time there may have been the realization and even the inclination to respond to the Lord's invitation. They put it off and they put it off and sin kept working, kept hardening, kept hardening. And so finally, there's no longer that realization. No wonder the scripture says, today is the day of salvation. And there's another reason. This blessed book that I hold before you teaches very clearly, repeatedly, that Jesus is going to come again. Now, I have not personally counted, but I have read, I assume from those that have, that one of every 25 verses in the New Testament affirms that Jesus is going to come again. And just because there have been speculators and uh, so-called interpreters of the end times, and they've given all of these dates. You remember the date in May when they just knew the Lord was going to come. This guy had, had figured it all out. They had a billboard on Franklin Road, Dennis. Now it's going to happen. It's absolutely going to happen. And you're going back to 1988. And this fellow put out a little booklet, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Would Be in 88. He claimed at once he'd been a rocket scientist. I told somebody, well, I can see why sometimes those things explode. I preached a sermon at Creve Hall during all of that hullabaloo. One reason why I know the Lord may not come in 88. Because he said, of that day and hour knoweth no man. Amen. No, not the angels of heaven, but the Father only. But I'll guarantee you one thing. He will not come tonight. You say, how do you know that? I don't. I'm trying to make a point. Fellow says, well... You know, I've never been baptized into Christ. The relationship with him has never been established. Therefore, I've never become a child of God because those in Christ are God's children. It's written in your Bible, Galatians 3, 26 and 27. And so, uh, you know, before the Lord comes, uh, I certainly plan to do that. What if he came tonight? Back in my college days, I was preaching for the church down at Minor Hill in Giles County. And I was going, I was living with my sister and brother-in-law in Athens, Alabama, and I was going home one Sunday night, and I saw something in the sky that I'd never seen before. And I was confident the Lord was coming. And I'm telling you, I was ready to get, stop the car and get out and meet him. And the moon came from behind a cloud formation. 
Then I analyzed all the way to Athens my reaction. I'm going to tell you something. I was glad I reacted like that. I mean, I would not have been surprised if he really had been coming. One of these days, may not be in my lifetime, may not be in your lifetime, but the trumpet of the Lord will sound, and he shall come again. Not to this earth, but he's coming again. And those that are his saints will meet him in the air and ever be with the Lord, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 4. This material universe will have become a memory. Humanity will be before the judgment seat of Christ. And the judgment's not a trial. It's a judgment. The trial's over. The judgment is a declaration or pronunciation of destinies. One of two things. Come inherit the kingdom prepared for you or depart. Depart. I never knew you. And for the Lord to tell you to depart, I never knew you. Those words would come down on your soul with a more sickening sound than cold clods of clay on your mother's casket the coldest day in December. I never knew you. You know why the Bible says today is the day of salvation? Now you know. Now, I don't know your spiritual state. You know it and God knows it. There might be a person in this audience who knows as well as you know your name that you need to turn with a penitent mind to the Lord Jesus Christ away from your former life. You need to honor him by confessing him. He said, you confess me, I'll confess you. With the heart man believes and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You've read it, Romans 10, 9 and 10. And submitting to the Lord's command to be baptized, putting you in contact with the soul-cleansing blood of the Lamb, Romans 6, 3 and 4, baptized into his death. And you know that. And maybe someday you might even consider doing that. Someday. That someday may not ever be another day for you. And I'm not preaching to people at this point in my life. You need to obey the gospel because you don't know when you're going to meet the Lord in the judgment. I preach that, but I'm telling people, I want you to get out of death, out of a world where people are dead in trespasses and in sin, and enjoy on this earth life. Jesus came to give us life, John 10, 10, to give us an abundant life, not a simple biological existence, but meaning, as I've said, and purpose and joy and peace and hope. You're denying yourself of that. That's why we plead for your soul. And brother or sister, you remember the day when you were baptized into Christ? Maybe you came out of that water grave and, and folks were singing, Oh, happy day that fixed my choice on thee, my Savior and my God. Well, may this glowing heart rejoice until its rapture is all abroad. Happy day when Jesus washed my sins away. And that was the day you were going to live for the Lord the rest of your days upon this earth. I mean, you were sincere. You meant it. But the old world kept pulling and tugging, pulling and tugging. And finally, you gave up. You know, God hasn't given up on you. 
You may have given up on your own efforts, but God has not given up on you. He's got a way for you to come home. You can come back to your first love. You can come back to a feast of joy again, to a feast of forgiveness again. The Lord makes all that possible. And it's revealed in this precious book. That's why the theme of this book and a one-word summary of this blessed book is salvation. Are you ready to respond to the Lord's invitation? Not mine, not Randy's, not the invitation of the elders of this church. The Lord's invitation. You have the opportunity and even the encouragement. We're not going to sing this as a tradition. We're going to sing it as an exhortation. Taking our hearts and voices, I hope to reach into your good and honest heart to encourage you to let Jesus be your Savior. Let us sing.